0: Welcome to Making Waves, a show about sound art, produced for WGXC Wave Farm by New Adventures in Sound Art. Before we begin, just a short reminder that listener support for WGXC keeps this spot on the radio dial vital and essential. To donate, visit WGXC.org. My name is Darren Copeland, and on today's episode of Making Waves, we explore techniques, both new and old, used to produce sounds and images for two live stream performances coming up on October 17th and 24th. David Breckenridge, in the second half of the show, interviews filmmaker and musician Robert Fantonato, the creator of I Dream of Wires, a documentary film on the modular synth renaissance. In the interview, Fantonato relates his own journey with modular synths and more recently, his interest in a digital variation on the technique of liquid light that he has developed with his son, Aiden Fantanato. And to begin the show, we'll hear my interview with Abhishek Sinha, a Bengali Canadian composer and media artist, about his recent exploration of AI in electronic music. I've known you as uh, you know electro electroacoustic composer and a sound designer, and, uh, and then you've also done stuff with film and with texts, and often related to the Vita uh, scriptures, and how does this take off from that work?
1: In November of 2019, which wasn't that long ago, less than a year, it feels like 12 years, but uh, I had the opportunity to go to Tokyo. Uh, Mutech Japan had a, what they call the AI Music Lab, The Mutech network has been doing these AI um, labs for sound artists and electronic musicians and composers uh, to explore the various tools that um, uh, machine learning, mostly, uh, that could operate on sound and how that might influence people's practice and exploration. And um, I was really unsure. I went to Tokyo actually not having any idea what was going to happen. I knew very little about AI and machine learning and that aesthetic and those tools. Um, But, you know, it's clear that those uh, algorithms are being used in more and more places. And really, of anything, it was more of a motivation for me to just get on top of what exactly these processes are and how they operate and how they might uh, manifest in our lives our day-to-day lives not just as sound uh, artists but just like everybody it, it touches everyone now and you know uh, I suspected and uh, it's been confirmed clearly there's a very uh, robust community around this but I suspected that there were um, ethical issues that we have to deal with and you know structural equity issues, all these things that were kind of part and parcel of this whole world of exploration. So we kind of touched a little bit on that in Tokyo. You know, mostly it was me just frantically trying to keep up with everyone because they all, everyone, all of us had different um, uh, backgrounds and, and just trying to understand what happens when I use these tools on the material and the, the kind of dramaturgical ideas that interest me. And uh, you know, I came up with some very interesting outcomes. I thought, you know, it opened up a whole kind of sound world that initially I was not that enamored with. You know, the sound uh, results of using these algorithms on on audio recordings is of is a very particular kind of sound. And uh, initially, I was kind of repelled by it. I didn't really like it that much. i I, I didn't find it very satisfying in a way. But then I thought, as I thought about it more, I was kind of thinking like, oh, I wonder though, if there's a sound world here that because I wouldn't aesthetically necessarily go looking for these results. I wonder if there's something that is useful for me in in how I tell stories and the way in which I create content for the stories that I want to tell. So that's kind of what kind of, it, it kind of snared me a little bit and uh, made me a little bit curious about I feel like my whole life has been a, a, a series of me going what happens if I dot 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 and it's always been it's always been that and that and that kind of reawakened the the fire of that question for me using these tools what happens if I use them and what happens if I expose them to this material or that material what comes out on the other end and and how might that change or inspire my storytelling from now
0: and so what happens then
1: well uh what happens then is is a kind of a a process of questioning that i think i haven't really undertaken for a while i think you know when i started working with field recordings and electroacoustic music and electronic music back on my first CD quell which I sent you and you and you and Nadine introduced me to this whole world of sound art that was a you know a real I had a real fire behind that question what happens if I take these field recordings because I knew nothing about soundscape music or any of that history in Canada or anywhere and it was after trying that what happens if series of what happens if questions on this material and, and sharing it with you that I kind of realized there's this whole new world. And I was really driven and I had a big fire under me to kind of really push myself to explore this world. And through that process of exploring and kind of finding my voice and kind of finding the ways in which I wanted to work and the stories I wanted to tell, I feel like I found a world that I was very comfortable in. And when I started working with these machine learning tools and materials, It relit that fire because I don't really know what this world is. I mean, no one does. None of us do. Anyone who's working with these tools is really just trying to find their way in the dark. Um, Whether or not we're working with uh, sound or artistic materials or building health apps or whatever. Everyone's really trying to find their way. And on top of that, like I have the advantage of having 20 years of practice behind me both in sound art and in working in theater and understanding what storytelling is and you know i've had the the good fortune to work with so many wonderful theater artists over the years in in that part of my life and sitting around the table with people who are so attuned to stories and words and how they unfold it certainly made my work stronger and so now i have the advantage of that and also the enthusiasm and the the curiosity and the lack of knowledge as well in, in the in that world so i i get to kind of have the best of both worlds in a way
0: so you used it with texts but you mentioned that a lot of people use it with sound recordings mm-hmm. so was it was the artificial intelligence working off of a recording of a text
1: There's a number of algorithms that you can use. I mean, there's a lot of text algorithms, uh, text based ones. I mean, one of the neural networks that I use is called uh, Char RNN, Recombinant Neural Network. So what it is, is basically feeding it a whole bunch of text and then kind of basically letting it try to learn that text. And then for me, stopping the network in the process of learning and finding out what it's pieced together from the source material that i've given it and in that case um uh, I, in tokyo i gave it the rigveda which is the first veda of four in the hindu uh, scriptures and it's a it's a veda based on rules and you know kind of like it's it's a bit of a recipe book in a way uh for how you write action and how to do puja and all these things and and uh talks a lot about the deities and the pan the hindu pantheon so I fed it that text and then interrupted its kind of relearning of it. So it analyzes the text because it uses a model of language, English language. It understands the world in terms of this model. So language works in this way. When there's a space, that means there's a new word. And this punctuation means that and a carriage return means it's a new line. So it has all these rules. You know, really it's statistics. I mean, that's what it is. That's what machine learning is. It's really fast math. It's not intelligence, it's not by any means, any sort of intelligence. It has, uh, you know, you you use a neural network that understands the world, whatever world it knows, and it only understands that, that's all it understands. So when you give it input, it tries to understand it in terms of what it knows the world to be. So often you'll see somebody like, for example, um, there's one artist, Memo Aitken, Who does some uh, video work he's he's done work with Jennifer Walsh and people like that and so one of the pieces he does that I loved is is like there's a a video uh, and the the neural network is watching this video and people are like moving a wire and a, a hard disk shot from above but the neural network has only been trained on pictures of flowers so when it sees that information what it outputs is this beautiful you know moving picture of flowers but it's clearly the same shapes but it only understands what it sees through what it's been trained on so uh, with language you know using the the rigveda feeding it the the text and then interrupting the the learning process you end up with language that is clearly of a particular kind of bent it's spiritual in a way and it's otherworldly but it's not, it doesn't really make sense in a, in a conventional way. And that was something that I found extremely exciting because this idea of, I mean, sound is like that. It, it, it is very emotional and powerful, but it doesn't always make sense in a rigid epistemological way. It moves us, but we don't know why. And that's what was happening with the language that was being spit out by the neural network. And so that made me realize that okay this this idea of revealing power in material in a way that i never would have been able to construct myself or maybe very painstakingly was very exciting so it can operate on whatever material you give it it depends on what the model is and what the process is so you can um there's one thing that i use a lot called style transfer so there's there's basically a content. So there's material that is, here's the sound. And then there's material that you tell the model that this is the style. So you could feed it birdsong, for example. And then you could say, here's the content. And the content is uh, somebody making scrambled eggs, the recording of somebody making scrambled eggs uh, in a cast iron pan. And then, so if you feed it to the model, it knows the style of what sound is to them is birdsong. So what happens is basically the bird song gets mapped onto the audio recording of somebody making eggs and you end up with this very strange but compelling somehow uh, audio material that probably, you know, if you've had enough experience making sound over the years, you could probably come up with something like this and you could probably figure out how to make that happen. But, you know, it'd be very painstaking and I I feel somewhat unsatisfying process because it would just take so long. There's something about it being the output of this artificial process that I find dramaturgically very compelling, at least in terms of the material that I wanna tell stories about.
0: And so is this done with uh, expensive technology or is it a, a free download coming to you?
1: Well, I, I mean, I work in the Google Colab environment, which is uh, which is a, it's an open environment people make work and then they post it and you can use whatever notebooks that people have i mean you have to know some things about how to navigate it all but basically it you up you kind of expose your google drive to the environment and then you can uh choose files that are in your drive to work inside these notebooks what they're called notebooks collab notebooks
0: and so how did you use it in the piece coming up uh, adiva and is that that title is also a a rearrangement of some letters i imagine uh,
1: deva means uh god and in bengali when you put a, which is usually transliterated as an a a deva like Oshobo, which Shobho is cultured and if you say oshobho you're uncultured so deva is god and odeva is like not god but the thing about it is there's still the word god in there right so Oshobo is uncultured but it it presupposes the idea of culture in the first place right so this is just a a play on words i guess in bengali that i really like so adeva is like a not god and so what i'm using is um, a lot of field recordings i've collected in india uh, text like the rigveda for now to generate material that i'll then use in the performance and some of the visuals are also being subjected some of the visuals that i've collected in India are being subjected to many of the same processes. So um, style transfer and, and generative adversarial networks, GANs, which is, um, I'm sure many of your listeners have seen GAN artwork, which is where, you know, you'll have a face and then it'll slowly morph into another face, into another face. Those are all uh, GANs. So I'm using some of those on the visual material to accompany my performance.
0: So, if I understand this, uh, some of your soundscape recordings were subjected to this process, this AI process, and so it was trying to make sense of a dense gathering of sounds or whatever from a place or market, whatever, and and then it's extracting from that what it knows about the the Veda scriptures.
1: Well, no, what it does is with the sound with the audio recordings, it's it's extracting what it knows about how the world sounds so uh earlier when i was speaking about style transfer i was you know you you tell it this is the style of the sound and here's the content how does this con? so this is the convolution uh, analogy right where you're mapping a timbre or information onto another sound so that's one uh, process another process is a, a notebook i use called splitter which is basically unmixing uh, so you could give it a a uh, recording of a jazz quartet and um you feed it to the splitter algorithm and it will spit out really quite well uh the bass track like the double bass and then the drums and the piano and the saxophone and it does actually an amazing job on you know a stereo recording so you're kind of unmixing the material And one of the things I like about Splitter is that it's very clear what the world is that it thinks is real. What it thinks is real is Western music, right? Bass, drums, guitars, keyboards, whatever. So to me, that's okay. That's great. So what happens when I feed it Cambodian nine gong gamelan music or the Bengali folk singer that I recorded on the street? And what does that split into and what? what material do i get there and what does that actually say about the process itself and the model that was being built and to a greater degree about the world in which the model was built in the first place you know like there's a lot of big questions being addressed by telegram groups like decolonial ai and uh, resistance ai there's like a lot of ai and machine learning academics and coders who are kind of being very unrelenting in pointing out the culture in which science grows and, you know, the tools that are being built. I read a great tweet the other day. People are always saying that humanities majors should learn about coding, but maybe coding majors should learn about humanities and realize that maybe they shouldn't have built that facial recognition app in the first place, right? So, you know, there's that tension and that dialogue is is becoming very um, lively in the world.
0: Related to that, perhaps, is... I mean you've always found different ways to reflect your cultural background in your music in different ways and as you've shifted through different musics you've you've incorporated that in different ways how does this enter into that process of of relating your background to listeners perhaps that don't know your background I think
1: what I find so compelling about Making up these offstage myths like for those of you who haven't heard my music or my pieces it's it's a lot of um, Things like, you know, imagining Shiva on the summit of Mount Kailash or imagining what the Buddha Thought under the Bodhi tree just before he attained enlightenment So it's a lot of imagination and and building stories and myths that don't really that aren't really part of the canon And certainly aren't part of the canon in terms of like how i think about characters the characters that i'm talking about like ganesh and um, garuda and people so i think what's been compelling for me and why i keep coming back to the those kinds of stories and making them up is because maybe i'm trying to fill in some gaps you know like when i grew up in winnipeg we had a very small indian community and we didn't have Uh, only some of us were Bengali and we all celebrated together Sikhs and Muslims and Bengalis and Gujaratis and everybody and uh, culture is very regional in India so Bengali culture is very particular and Gujarati culture is very particular and we weren't we didn't really have the luxury of exploring those um, specifics when I was growing up Uh, so it was more of a I guess a melting pot in a way if I want to use that term it was just Indian. So I was learning about aspects of Hindu culture and Muslim culture that were very regionally specific, but I didn't really understand them to be that way. And as I grew older and more information became apparent, uh, not apparent, but available to me like libraries at first, and then you know, traveling to India in my childhood, and then the internet came and uh, all this stuff. I kind of realize that I have gaps in my knowledge and what I'm trying to do is fill in those gaps in a way with content that makes sense to me. So, you know, if I look at it that way, I'm kind of extending upon this, I, this concept of, of the good people who are doing work in, you know, African futures and indigenous futures. I'm, I feel like in a way, and especially now that I'm a father, that I'm kind of building a future. I'm building an expression of what my, culture is and how I grew up here and trying to make sense of the gaps in my knowledge and trying to also manifest the things that I feel are part of me so using machine learning and these algorithms I think kind of opens up new vistas of futures in a way because I'm working with material that I wouldn't come up with on my own. Like, I don't think I would even think to create some of the things that I've that I've been enamored with uh, using these materials. Up, up until now, I feel like I, I've really been trying to make sense of my past and really trying to, you know, working with the field recordings were about a, a place and a time in a place and trying to understand that and how that resonated within me. But I guess my perspective is kind of shifting away from the past and more towards the future.
0: Are there role models for you in uh, thinking of it this way?
1: Yeah, there's um, there's a number of artists who are working with this idea and with these tools. There's one in particular, a friend of mine uh, from Mexico, a Mexican sound artist named Hexorcismos. Uh, Moises is his name. And he has released a record recently, and that's actually, I hunted, kind of hunted him down and we became good friends. And he has done a lot of this same thinking, uh, thinking about indigenous and older cultures in Mexico, trying to use these tools to kind of bring them alive in a way that's very real and very now and not kind of um, exotified in a way. There's often a kind of impulsive when you're you're trying to express an aspect of, of a culture that's older or not Western, there's a, you know, an impulse to exotify or, or deify that aspect of the culture. Wow, isn't that amazing? Look, listen to this amazing thing. It's so incredible. And I can smell the incense and that's fine. But I mean, I feel like there has to be also a, a realistic apprehension of the past that also looks towards the future and, and makes culture alive. And so Hexorcismos, uh is, is doing work like that. And there are a number of academics who are working in the more kind of uh, theoretical academic fields. I mentioned earlier, there's a group on Twitter called Resistance AI and uh, people like Timnit Gebru and Black in AI who are um, really trying to use these tools to um, build a perspective that is rooted in critical thinking, uh and yet still you know still using these tools not you know dismissing them but using them critically and using them in a way that um kind of highlights best practices i suppose in a way when we're dealing with culture and cultural expression
0: where do you see uh the work that you've done how is it positioned would you say within other indian Contemporary culture, uh, as opposed to traditional classical practices, are you lost in your own sphere, or you're uh, one of many, or where do you, where 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 do you see yourself in that light?
1: I'm not sure. I think I'm not really sure. I there's this uh, maybe you know of a sound artist named Buddha Ditya Chaudhupadhye. He's he's been doing uh, attentive listening and sound work. He's based in Berlin now. And we had a very interesting conversation the other day. He's, he's interviewing um, sound artists from the Global South about their practice. And he wanted to talk to me. And I, I, I met him many, many years ago in Kolkata when he was still there uh, working in film. And we've kept in touch over the years. And and he asked me a very a, kind of a similar question. He was like, "How do you how do you see the practice that you do in terms of um, how people are exploring Indianness or being of that culture. I'm not really sure. like there's an incredible amount of really smart visual and installation art that's being made on the Indian subcontinent. like way smarter than anything I've ever done for sure that I that I find very interesting and is only peripherally kind of connected to, identity of Indianness that's rooted in the past. And for me, when Buddha Ditya asked me that question about Indianness, I kind of realized that before it was about engaging with content. So the all the field recordings that I collected and letting them give rise to something in me and express something in my sound world. That was kind of what it was about. It was about content in a way. And now it's more about form. Like he was asking me about listening and I said, you know, I connect the action of listening in a particular way. You know, when I listen in that particular way, I feel a particular way in my body and I really connect that feeling and that action with my cultural heritage. So it's not really so much about the content anymore. It's more about the activation of that impulse and what that does in me and it physically personally and I don't want to say the content is incidental because clearly it's not I mean I'm still working with this material but there is something about I don't want to say neutral but the idea that incense or tabla or a field recording from Kolkata is not a necessary condition Like that content is not a necessary condition of my expression and my connection to my heritage.
0: Are there different reference points that you would call upon or resist against working across the diaspora as opposed to if you were in India?
1: I wonder. I'm very aware of, and more so now than ever since COVID and then the resulting explosion of Political activism that has kind of come into the mainstream now. That you know, conversations that I've been having with my friends and in uh, with other activist people and people of color, like those, those are those conversations are actually being seriously talked about in the mainstream, like defunding the police and uh, land back and all those kinds of movements. They're they're now like people I never thought would utter those words are uttering those words. So, to me. I grew up here. I grew up in Canada and I grew up with these conversations happening in my mind and with my friends. And that's part and parcel of who I am. And that's part and parcel of how I situate the work I do. And so, you know, if I went to India to to work, it would still be part of me. It would still be. I mean, sadly, these issues are, are all over the world. They're everywhere. It's not like there's a place where you know, uh, all indigenous people are being treated fairly and everyone's very happy and getting along. They're, sadly, they're they're everywhere. So, you know, the Canadian context for these uh, conversations is part of who I am and part of how I frame those issues. And so, you know, the fact that I'm trying to tell stories and build a cultural future for myself, is very integrated with who i am here as a as a settler as someone who's you know a straight male who has had privilege my father was an academic i've had you know it's very intersectional and i'm i'm very aware of that so i feel like it's i hope it's embedded in my work and no matter where i go i've lived on I've lived here for 50 years. It's it's just part of who I am, no matter where I'd be.
0: That was Dabesha Sinha in conversation on Making Waves here on WGXC. Sinha's upcoming live stream performance will be on October 24th at 7 p.m. Ticket and event details are at nasa.ca, N-A-I-S-A dot C-A. Occurring one week prior to that on October 17th is a video and electronic music performance by Robert Fantinato, And David Breckenridge from NASA caught up with him online for a conversation about his work as a filmmaker and musician.
2: Can you tell us a bit about yourself? Well, I went to UFT just for one year, though. I was originally uh, uh, studying astrophysics and then um, realized it. Uh, I just didn't have what it took to do that. So I ended up switching to York University and got a, a degree in uh, film production at the film school there. I actually uh, started working in the mid 90s with Charles Street Video and I worked there as a studio technician, I guess, or a technical supervisor for a while. So I was doing a lot of um, assisting other people in their video art projects and documentaries and that sort of stuff. As for myself, I didn't really start doing my own creative work until early 2000s. And I did a short uh, documentary called Echoes of Forgotten Places, which was all about the urban exploration subculture, which at that time was still pretty underground, and it got mainstream pretty quick afterwards. And uh, I recently, I guess in 2014, um, I finished a feature documentary called, uh, I dream of wires, which made it onto Netflix and, uh, did quite well. Um, and, uh, it was, yeah, it was a, it was a pretty successful independent film project that worked out quite nicely. Most of my career has been uh, as a video editor working on other people's films, but I'm primarily uh, doing my own feature stuff now. I've got two feature documentaries that are in post-production right now. Uh, One of them is called um, Electronic Voyager, which is the story of uh, Bob Moog, who invented um, the Moog synthesizer and it follows his daughter on her um, quest to sort of uh, decode his life by retracing his footsteps. And we've been working on that for about four years now. And then the other film, which is also in post right now, is a film about composer Morten Subotnick, who is 87 years old right now, but um, still very active. Uh, The music stuff is something that I don't really have big ambitions for. It's something I do purely for my own personal uh, interest.
3: You've been busy across uh, many different fields, visual and audio. Upcoming, what, what primarily we're, we're going to talk about is endosymbiosis. Um, and so first off, uh, what does
2: that actually mean? Endosymbiosis? <laughs> so it's a uh, process. You know, it's an evolution process basically. Uh, now, biology is not my background, but I'm gonna try to explain it as best as I can. Um, it's basically where you have simple cells um, that absorb other simple cells, and then the absorbed simple cell becomes over time a nucleus or an internal structure to the more simpler cell creating more complex cells. So it's a process by which they, you know scientists believe simple cells evolved into more complex cells so it's really you know how complex life starts at a cellular level i can see how that relates to the visuals because i I checked out a a short trailer
3: for endosymbiosis um uh, just earlier and uh, wow those visuals are stunning so um and uh what um from what i read I guess they're going to be coming to us in uh, 4K. Is that right?
2: Well, uh, depending on the setup that's uh, being supported at the performance, it's it's uh, possible that I might be feeding. I mean, they're captured in 4K, but uh, likely they're going to be fed out in HD. But the basically the setup there is a pre-recorded uh, visual component that also includes uh, some sounds, but it's more of a droning background sound, which is uh, water sounds that have been slowed down sort of to give you and and filtered to give you the sense of being underwater. And so yeah, so the idea is that um, the visual thing will be streaming and then I will be performing uh, improvised on top of that. And I believe they will be jumping between the visuals and showing what I'll be doing on the synthesizer.
3: So uh, the visuals like i said are stunning and uh i can see the relation to endosymbiosis which is pretty cool but um the visuals are created using something called liquid light right and uh, i think yeah i think that's like like modular synthesizers that's also something that that came around um
2: absolutely earlier yeah. on right um, yeah i mean um in particular, I mentioned I'm I'm working on a film about Morton Sabotnik, and that's definitely uh, you can look right back to that as um, that was really inspiration for me to explore this technique. I mean, I've seen it; most people have seen liquid light projections um, if you've ever watched, you know, films with the Grateful Dead or or a Jefferson Airplane or something. Right. But um, you know, it has its origins. Um, I don't know the entire history of it but uh, became popularized in san francisco but also not just the psychedelic rock movement but also the avant-garde or experimental music movement uh, based out of the san francisco tape music center which was started in the early must have been 62 or 63 in san francisco and uh, when uh, Morton Zabotnik and uh, Ramon Sender and Pauline Oliveras and all the various people that were working through that center, uh, when they started doing electronic music, which primarily at that time was not a live performance but a tape playback, they realized that there were they were missing a visual component. That usually when you're going to see a live music performance, there's something to watch. You know, someone's playing a violin or whatever they're doing so that's where they started to experiment with uh you know lighting and all kinds of things like that and so again i don't really know what the exact origins of the liquid light technique are but it really you know started to get used quite a bit um around that time concept behind it the thing that makes it work is just the mixture of oil and water uh oil and water don't mix they you know they they kind of float around each other um much like a a lava lamp works, a uh, lava lamp has a, a a water oil mixture, and as the oil heats up, it floats to the top, and then it cools down, and you get all that sort of stuff happening. And it's uh so in the traditional way of of how it was done, you would take two pieces of glass that you would normally um, use for a clock face, so it's sort of a, a a concave piece of glass, and one fits on top of the other. And so you would put in some water and put in some mineral oil, and then you use a combination of water-based dyes and oil-based dyes. And just by mixing these things together, they do all kinds of interactions. And usually by sandwiching these oil, you know, different mixtures between the two glasses, you can create this weird pulsing type of look. And that's the traditional Uh, Psychedelic light show look. And normally they would have this on an overhead projector, which is an old piece of technology, which maybe a lot of people who are listening to this don't know about. But um, overhead projector, uh, and then they would just project this thing. And so you're working with a pretty large area, maybe a one foot by one foot uh, area where all of this is happening. The liquid light components, a a collaboration between my son, uh, Aiden, and myself. We have a piece of glass with a diffusion gel on it and an LED light panel underneath. So we're creating this very even light that's coming up. And then rather than using the big uh, clock glass, we have these little Petri dishes and a 4K camera with a macro lens. So what we're doing there is rather than creating these large pulsating swirls and big atmospheres of things, we're actually going in on a very tiny area Inside those tiny areas, all kinds of little dramas are going on. You know, there's, there's, you know, the the, the liquids are, are moving slowly, and they get attracted to each other with surface tension, and then things start happening, and uh, all kinds of weird and exciting things. And sometimes you have no idea what scale you're looking at. It sometimes looks microscopic, or, um, you know, like cellular level, and other times you think you're looking at some vast cosmic landscape, and that's really. What inspired me to the idea of this piece is um, the the sort of uh, idea of scale and how you know you see similar processes going on on a macro scale when you're looking out into the universe and uh, you know same kinds of processes you're seeing on a microscopic scale and how we're sort of connected to the you know these different processes sort of connect with each other in a sense. Um more just philosophically, it's interesting to me, you know, and I've always been drawn to to uh, space and astronomy and things like that. And um, so I, I thought it was kind of interesting to see on a microscopic scale, uh, similar things that are happening, um, in, you know, in a fast way and how, you know, the, the processes that led to our evolution uh, have some similarities to what you see in, uh, you know, in the cosmic scale.
3: Absolutely. Uh, Can I ask you, who is Robert Blank? Oh, gosh. Um,
2: That's an interesting question. Um, Was Robert Blank a a kind of a pseudonym that you used? Yeah. That's uh, as far as the music stuff, because the the music stuff, you know, I, I um, I don't, I don't really push too much. It's not a, um, you know, for me, the, the documentary stuff is really uh, how I make a living and, you know it's the where i put all my energy into primarily but i i'm i have an interest in in music that goes back all the way to the 80s um and my interests are pretty wide and so the robert blank persona is actually uh the more synth pop style music that i do uh whereas under my own name i'm i'm doing just more experimental stuff uh I so yeah right. <laughs> that's right, right. Uh, and my son and i actually also um Put out a CD a while back, uh, a co- collaboration, and uh, that project was called Slash Run, as in the computer command. Um, so I've, I've, you know, done some different musical genres, and I took inspiration from Aphex Twin, who um, seems to have so many different uh, pseudonyms. So I picked Robert Blank for the more commercial, sort of synth pop, lighter stuff. Well, I think it's
3: really cool that you're collaborating with your son. Uh, Aiden, um, how did he get into it?
2: Well, uh, he's uh, we've we've done a lot of collaboration music wise for quite a while, uh, and in fact, um, he was the one who uh, sparked my interest in getting back into electronic music. Uh, when he was a teenager, he uh, started listening to, you know, a lot of the old uh, electronic stuff that I was into way back, and um, so he just got me back into it because I had. Kind of put music aside for a long time and uh, so we did a a, some music collaboration stuff and um, he frequently uh does a lot of uh work with me on the documentaries so yeah we work together on a lot of different things so uh how how is switching to online
3: performance working for you Uh, if not for corona would you usually be performing (laughs) in a venue Um, and are you making it work for yourself i mean how's that going
2: yeah. Well, the music stuff, uh, is not something I usually pursue on a live, you know, in a live performance, uh, because of the type of stuff that I do tends to be, uh, you know, I'm working on my own and, and tends to be multi-tracked. And, uh, so I've not really done a lot of live stuff in the music. Uh, so, you know, this thing I'm doing with uh, NASA is a bit of an experiment. So, um, so yeah i haven't really been doing too much online stuff i primarily i've been using the pandemic uh, the ice iso- you know the the the, the self um uh, isolation to concentrate on getting the post done on my two documentaries so i've been primarily just delving into that and i'm very close to having both those films done so i've been really concentrating on that more than anything so this performance has actually been great because it's allowed me to uh, get back into doing some music stuff, which I had put aside for quite a while. And uh, also the opportunity to do a live uh, improvised piece is is pretty exciting and very unpredictable uh, because the type of uh, instrument I'm using is a modular synthesizer, which has no presets. It's completely um, manually patched and completely, well, not completely, but there's a lot of unpredictability going on there. So I'm hoping it's going to work out. <laughs> but it's a risk um, i mean you never know
3: <laughs> can i ask you what's your setup like uh these days um when you you say you've been um experimenting and keep making new sounds so uh, just for people who are really into modular synthesizers what's your setup like
2: okay well uh i have the the system i'm going to be using is a a pretty pared down uh setup um it's it is two um uh, Self contained little units that I'll be connecting together. And it's part, uh, it uses the EuroRack format. And so the EuroRack format is a uh, somewhat affordable uh, modular synthesizer format. And there are hundreds of different manufacturers who make different modules. And each module is either involved in processing voltages or creating some kind of, or creating or modifying some kind of audio signal. And so because there are hundreds of manufacturers and literally thousands of different modules that you can make, every instrument that somebody puts together um, is unique and can be completely customized. And also by getting additional blank racks, you can uh, fill, you know, put different things in there. And there's a very active uh, swapping, you know, sort of thing that happens where people will be trading modules to try something different. Here's a typical, uh, this is a little case that, uh, and there's so many, again, so many companies that make these, and this is really where you start off is you've got to have some kind of case with a power supply and all the modules, you can see, they they all look pretty distinctive because they're all made by different companies and every company's got its interesting uh, way of doing things, but there are some standards. So the voltage that you need, to run these things is common. And the signal levels, uh, which tend to be much higher than line level, I think they're plus 10 volt, uh, is another common thing. So as long as you know you have that standard going, you can use any module from one manufacturer uh, with another. And so this particular unit here is more the performance aspect. This is where I have most of the signal processing going on, that uh, processes not audio, but control voltages. So um, the whole concept behind modular synthesis is to control parameters using voltages. So rather than a mechanical keyboard, and you can use a keyboard with these, but the keyboard ultimately has to produce a voltage between um, zero and 10 volts, I believe. And in traditional Western scales, a difference of one volt equals uh, one octave. Now you don't have to work in traditional Western scales. They came up with that standard so that you know most people who are doing, like for example, the synth pop stuff I do, is all in Western scales. But what I'll be doing um, on during the performance is. Um, Likely going to go off in other directions. So, um, I can just briefly, for example, here I've got a little module that you can put a MIDI signal in. So, you can send MIDI from any kind of device you want. Could be a keyboard, could be, you know, a sequencer, all kinds of stuff. And then it decodes the digital signal into analog voltages. And then here you've got a joystick. And the joystick, again, it's a source of voltage. So, moving in the y direction or the x direction will give you a plus or minus uh, voltage which you can then tap into and then these voltages can be sent to control let's say the pitch of this oscillator here. the oscillator is a device that creates sound. This thing over here, for example, is a touch plate so it's it's pressure sensitive and this is kind of like a keyboard but again um, it's got variable voltages so you you're not stuck to any particular uh scale or anything here you've got a complicate a complex envelope generator so an envelope is basically just a uh, device that creates a varying voltage over time and you can use an envelope to mimic the way an acoustic instrument creates sound or whatever you like and there's four of them that are all linked together so combining these different envelopes you get very complex movements and then this thing here is a uh I can't remember, uh, can't remember what they call this thing. It's It basically regulates voltages into Western scale. So there's like a little keyboard over here. And you can send in a, a voltage, and it will force it into a scale. And these scales can be Western scales. They have Eastern scales, all kinds of different things. So this is an example of a pretty simple setup. Uh, but I'll be using this in combination with uh, a, another box that has two rows of different modules. Uh, One of them is a little sampler, so I can uh, sample sounds and manipulate sampled sounds. But primarily, I'm going to be working with um, analog-generated sounds for this performance. So there's not a lot of digital stuff going on at all. Uh, There's not going to be any computer control or anything like that. It's going to be completely analog. And again, um, how those things interconnect, uh, you actually use patch cables so these things here and you have to do this interconnection and there's no memory on how these things are connected so in in in, basically with the performance I'm going to be doing uh three setups over the half hour so in between each setup i'm going to be pulling all the cables out and kind of repatching stuff and kind of guessing what i'm going to end up with and i'll be listening and modifying as i go so The nice thing about working with these types of systems is uh, it plays you as much as you play it, in a sense. You have to sort of, um, you don't know what you're going to get, and there are so many variables that it's almost impossible to go back to what you had. So you have to just listen and modify and then listen to the reaction. So it's this wonderful back and forth. So that's what I,
3: that's what I got from watching, uh, I dream of wires, uh, yesterday. Oh, right. um, Congratulations. Uh, I mean, getting that on, on Netflix so people can go and check out. I, I dream of wires, um, which was, you know, I, I, uh, do a lot of editing myself and, and shooting, shooting videos. And I just really appreciated how, how well that was, uh, put together. Um, another point that people were making in, in the dock was, um, besides, you know, that little bit of chaos that you get working with a modular, um, synthesizer, mm-hmm. it, it pulls you away. It allows you to get away from the the screen. So you're not just staring at a screen. You've got, it looks like you've got enough to do with all of these wires that you've, you've got to know, uh, which hole to put, which in, uh, and, uh, so it, uh, for me, I, I enjoy playing around with synthesizers, uh, mostly on the computer. Um, modular synth seems a bit intimidating, and uh, when I watched the documentary and, and just how long it takes to to tune some of them, was I, I was just surprised. Um, so yeah, you're you're brave to get into that. Um,
2: well, uh, I'm going to paraphrase uh, Brian Eno, who said something about how the problems or the the limitations of a technology later on become its charm. And, you know, modular synthesizers date back to the early 60s and they had no digital, inter, you know, parts to them, in a sense. They There was no mem- way of memorizing uh, or quickly recalling the setups. And because there was just no way of doing it back then, but you know, people were very excited about the new sounds they were hearing. And then as the technology advanced, the synthesizers became easier and easier to use. So you had presets. And people were like, Oh, this is great. You know, who wants a modular synthesizer, just throw them away, you know, they're, they're completely obsolete. And, but that's the charm that brings people back to it is the fact that holy moly, now I got to actually You know, start from scratch with you know with everything. There is no preset, and you know suddenly you realize that uh, not having a preset and also making you work and think about the path the signal's taking opens up new creative possibilities that would not come to you. Uh, And also, like you're saying, um, stepping away from a computer, you're actually it's hands-on. You know, there are knobs to turn and switches to push. And one of the things you shouldn't be too intimidated about with these synthesizers is that there's really no way to just, you know, to harm the thing. And there are no specific rules about uh how to set them up. So they are, you know, it helps to understand something to get you started, but where it takes you from that point is a matter of experimentation and just listening. And if you're, you know, no, when you recognize the sound and, and it's moving in the direction you want to, you know, to move in that direction. Uh, but, you know so yes you're right there is a learning curve at some point but there's also it's also open to complete uh, experimentation where you don't understand what's going on you're simply just trying everything because no matter what you do you can't really you can't they're you know pretty idiot proof let's put it that way there there's nothing you could do to them that would destroy them so um in, in you know going into it blind is a totally valid way of approaching it if they're idiot proof, let me add them.
3: <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Um, uh, but those those rooms, um, some of the scenes in I Dream of Wires, uh, you know, you have musicians working in in. I mean, it must get pretty hot in there. It's just stacks and stacks <laughs> of modulars. Uh I would I would en- really enjoy uh, spending some time in one of those rooms. Very cool. Anything
2: Anything more you'd like to add? Rob, oh well, I just want to mention that um, if somebody's looking for the film, it's no longer on Netflix because we had a a um, uh, a license that expired with them. So, but uh, you can always find it online; it's uh, still out there if people are interested. And um, there's also a four-hour version of it where um, it's really for the hyper nerds who who want to get into extreme detail about the technology. So, uh, yeah, if anyone's interested. Um, and uh, yeah, no, I'm really looking forward to doing this. Um, just a really brief explanation on, on what I'm doing in terms of the performance. Uh, uh, as I mentioned, it's it's about a half hour, and so the video is divided into uh, three 10-minute um, thematic sections. So I will be trying to um, set up the synthesizer in in a way that I'm hoping it will work in that way. So the the first section will be devoted to uh, uh, long sort of pitches and drones that are going to be about the medium that all this stuff is happening in, just the, the, the fluid and the medium. And then I will be uh, moving into a percussive setup, so it's going to be a lot of Uh, percussive events and gestures and then finally the last section is going to be melodic pitches and and much more sort of a prettier landscape and it's really about all the elements in the medium coming together and creating life and going out into the world so I'm hoping that's what's gonna happen Uh, but my apologies ahead of time if it goes completely crazy and, and we'll see what happens
0: You've been listening to an interview with Robert Fantinato on Making Waves here on WGXC. Both Fantinato's live stream show and the one by Dabash Sinha are coming up on October 17th and 24th at 7 p.m. Details are at nasa.ca, N-A-I-S-A. Thank you for listening, and thanks to those who have donated to WGXC. If you have not already done so, please visit WGXC to make your donation and keep a place on the dial for radio programming that is essential and vital.